Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. It's been an incredibly busy couple of weeks in the sport of drag racing and I've been living right in the center of it. We're back after a little bit of a layoff and we're going to have a lot of fun today with guests like Stevie Fast Jackson and Brittany Force. We're going to talk about the countdown, we're going to talk about the ProMod points which Stevie Fast Jackson is leading, and we're going to talk about some of the big major stories that have been happening both inside the world of drag racing and outside of it. Welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. We're back and we're back at full throttle. It is great to be back here in the NHRA Insider Podcast, and uh, it's been a couple of weeks, and it's been a couple of weeks for, I guess, good reasons personally. Been out uh, living the life here, running around, attending a various uh, kind of cadre of drag races around the country, seeing all different angles of the sport, and uh, really kind of getting maybe the pulse of its health in many different arenas. Um Maybe I start with an apology. Sorry that I've been a few weeks away from the show, but uh, very glad to have some experiences to share with you here today. And very gratifying to to hear from so many people saying, hey, man, uh, what's going on with the podcast? I haven't heard one in a couple of weeks. So um, to those of you that are dedicated listeners, thank you. To those of you that reached out and said, um, what's going on? Uh, thank you even more because uh, it certainly is cool to understand that this podcast is connecting with drag racing fans, both inside and outside the NHRA. So um My apologies for not giving you anything to listen to for a couple of weeks, but there's plenty of great podcasts out there to tune into. So hopefully you gave some other other podcasts some love over the course of this uh, slight hiatus for the NHRA Insider Podcast. Uh, As I mentioned, it's it's for, I would consider, pretty good reasons. Um, Basically, I left my house a couple days after the U.S. Nationals and attended a string of events that uh, all kind of backed up and stood on top of each other. So... I started in Bowling Green, Kentucky at an event called Holly LS Fest, which I'll talk about here in a minute. Uh, went straight from there to Hot Rod Magazine Drag Week, which I worked uh, at from Monday to Thursday, and then went straight to Reading, Pennsylvania, to Maple Grove. Uh, worked on a project for a couple days in Philadelphia after that, and then went straight down to Virginia Motorsports Park and announced the shakedown at VMP uh, with Al Tucci. Um, when, again, I'm going to get into this stuff as we go through the show, but... Uh, Guest today, as I mentioned, Stevie Fast Jackson, currently the points leader in the E3 Spark Plugs Pro Mod Series with a couple of races to go. He's out by about six rounds, so we're going to talk about his approach to the last couple of races, as well as his various successes he has had outside the NHRA this season. And Brittany Force is going to be on the show for the first time ever, which is fantastic. Really interested to pick Brittany's brain about uh, how she's feeling right now. She's only 33 points out of first place in Top Fuel, so um, a good, solid weekend, a record-setting weekend for her at Maple Grove Raceway, which we will touch on once she comes on the show so let's uh like what i did on my september vacation right even though i guess it wasn't it was a busman's holiday you know what a busman's holiday is it's uh you know it's when you leave your normal work to go do other work and i feel guilty even calling it work because it's you know i'm not out there breaking rocks in the sun i'm not out there you know uh providing you know health care to people um it's it's a month that I look forward to every year because September for me is traditionally one where um, I basically live at drag strips um, and various ones. So to start with LS Fest, and, and the reason I want to talk about some of these events is because drag racing is a sport that has a million different on-ramps to entry. There are so many ways for people to become involved in drag racing, um, especially now where we are in the history of the sport, where we are with the sport around the country. There's even more options than people have ever had. And ultimately, 
I think we're going to see these on ramps lead to um, you know changes up and down the sport, and I and I mean that in a good way. I mean evolutionary changes. Drag racing is never a motorsport that has stood still. It has always been a reflection of the times that it has existed in. When we look at how the sport has evolved over the years, both uh, in terms of mechanical competition, both in terms of its cultural, uh, you know, status and stuff like that. So, let's start with LS Fest, which is. Um, an event held at Beach Bend Raceway in Bowling Green, Kentucky, literally one of my favorite places in the world. It is, I like to call it the Fenway Park of drag racing. It has covered grandstands that were, um, that have been, uh, it's, it's just a place that is phenomenal, different than any other place you could ever go. It's attached to an amusement park. Um, and for LS Fest, this place is uh, an absolute three-ring circus. At the same time, there's drag racing on the drag strip. There's autocross and drifting action going on in the circle track directly behind the drag strip. There's a car show with you know a thousand vehicles in it. There's different contests, and there's twenty. There, I think this year they said there was twenty-six hundred feet of vendors um, kind of lining the property. And what there isn't there is professional drag racing it is amateur drag racing in its most pure form it is a lot of kids that have either never been on a drag strip or have uh, been on a drag strip in limited time there are classes of racing competition so there are some more seasoned type of sportsman racers out there but by and large if we're talking about four to five hundred entrants in the drag racing portion uh, at least let's say 300 of them are what we would call kind of rookies new people men and women that have that are just out there having a good time the biggest class they have at this event is uh, what they call grudge test and tune which is literally just come in and make some runs see how fast your stuff is and have a good time so there are some people that scoff at that you know there are people that are like oh why would why would anybody bother to waste their time doing that and those are people that have forgotten where they came from those are people that have forgotten the reasons they first went to a racetrack the reasons that they first were driven to go drag racing and people that uh, that have forgotten their roots. And part of the reason I bounce around and do all these events um, within the month of September is so I never become that person. Um, there are times when it's, you know, when it's maybe frustrating. There are times when maybe it's kind of like, man, what is going on out there? But at the end of the day, I always try to reel it back in and understand that these kids we're watching out here at LS Fest are where it's going. These kids are where eventually we need to continue to cultivate and uh, and grow. And in that group of 500 kids or whatever that are out there racing at LS Fest, there is a small handful of them that will take their experience and over time translate it into higher and higher performing cars, into more serious competition, and ultimately, who knows where it ends up. But you know, the on-ramps to drag racing, which in the past were simply go to test and tune, then go bracket racing, then go index racing. And then, you know, if you translate that into something higher up the chain, perfect. If not, that's kind of where you end up. Um, not to say that that's going away because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of bracket racers, young aspiring bracket racers that uh, want to go index racing, that want to climb the ladder, that want to race pro stock cars, that want to race this, that, or the other thing. So I'm not discounting that old path, but what I'm telling you is that that, that old path is being supplemented by new paths the likes of which started LS Fest. So, you know, from LS Fest, what I always take away is that kids still love cars, that kids still love drag racing, that kids still love the idea of these experiential, aspirational style events. 
the same way that a lot of kids may have looked at dragging their 67 Camaro to one of the, you know, one of the eight national events that existed at that time and running the thing in, you know, F stock automatic. A lot of the kids at LS Fest look at that event as their version of a national event where they can take their car from God knows where, tow it in and have fun. This wasn't just a bunch of kids from Kentucky down there screwing around. We had people from California. We had people from the Pacific Northwest, from New England, from the Southeast, from Texas. It is an aspirational event for these kids. And for those of you that have gone through the process, for those of you that have have done that, have been that young guy or girl that hitched their wagon up and dragged it to foreign drag strip land wherever and gone racing, you understand the thrill of it. And you understand that it's stuff like that that ultimately sets the hook for you for the rest of your life. And so big congratulations to Holly for what they have built at LS Fest, uh, having been involved not since the very beginning, but since some of the earlier ones when we had 150 or 200 cars total on the property. Now, basically selling the place out spectator-wise, selling it out entry-wise, they really have built something that has resonated with a generation of people that uh, that continues to come out in droves. So, did LS Fest, uh, then went directly to Drag Week. For those of you that are unfamiliar, which I think is known at this point, uh, Drag Week is an event that Hot Rod Magazine started putting on in 2005. I was there for the first one. 41 people showed up. Uh, with their race cars that they had to drive on the street. The cars have to have insurance. They have to pass a safety inspection. They have to be uh, license plated and uh, registered for street use. Um, And in some states, that's easier to do than others. But the event has evolved from 41 cars showing up that first year with 36 finishing to now uh, the event sells out its pre-registration in less than 10 minutes with 400 plus entries. This year, we started with 355 cars. We ended with about 300, which is typical for the level of carnage that we see. And again, racers have to uh, run their car, pack up their stuff, and drive it on public streets to the next track. And typically, it's about 1,000 miles of driving. This year, the event was held in uh, the on the East Coast, kind of in the upper mid-Atlantic quadrant, Maryland, uh, you know, New Jersey, Virginia. And so the driving mileage was shortened up but it was hard it was a hard 700 miles this year and uh it's a great test of man and machine and it's again this is nothing like a traditional nhra drag race you're basically making time trials you're handing in a time slip trying to set the lowest average elapsed time of your particular class that's how you win at drag week you don't win in a heads-up style format you win by being fast and being consistent and surviving to the end so again this draws a group of people most of which are not NHRA drag racers. That being said, Matt Forbes, Brandon Wilkinson came out this year, NHRA class racer extraordinaires. They had built a car, they had practiced, they had built themselves up, they had um, kind of studied this event and finally came out and did it. And it's been amazing watching their recap of the event on social media and talk about what they felt about it. Um, you know, a bunch of guys have Larry Dixon's run the event, uh, Richie Crampton, of course, Johnny Lindbergh, all those guys have been out and been a part of it. And it strikes at the heart of what I've been talking about with these different on ramps. These guys come out and they just have so much fun and they try to expand their program. So drag week, uh, always kind of a, a great soulful experience for me. You watch people overcome adversity. You watch people 
do things that they didn't think they were they were capable of, and um, you experience that with them. It's emotional. I mean, you watch people go through the week. I mean, you see people on the side of the highway welding their cars back together again, or you see them in a parking lot with the crankshaft out of the bottom of the engine trying to figure out how they're going to get to the next stop because their trailer's 500 miles away. It is uh, what I call drag racing's version of, a, of an untethered spacewalk. You leave your stuff on Monday, and you have to use your own wits and guile and guts to get back there on Friday to collect it again. And you can only exist with the help of fellow competitors. You can't have support vehicles. You can't have um, a bunch of stuff that's cheating. You can't trailer your stuff. You get thrown out. So Drag Week was exceptional um, in every way. You know, we, we see the agony and the the uh, the agony and the ecstasy, so to speak, of of defeat and success at that race, just like we see at national events. And it's just stretched out and prolonged over this course of five days. And it really was uh, really was something else. That led me directly into Reading. So I came into Reading directly off of Drag Week. I worked on th- on Thursday morning at Maryland International Raceway, hopped in a rental car and drove straight up to Reading, Pennsylvania. I unfortunately did not get to Reading in time to participate in the Mopar Mega Block Party, uh, which I will uh, rectify for next year. But Really was uh, a great event, so I've been told. Tony Pedragon and a bunch of the other, uh, a bunch of other folks are up there, and they had a blast at the Home Run Derby and the Car Show and everything else that went along with it. Reading was an incredible race. I mean, Reading was um, as great as Seattle was. Seattle still stands out to me as the race of the year so far in 2019, but Reading uh, a very close second in terms of the upsets we saw. Fernando Quadra making a final round in pro stock. Um, we see Richie Crampton winning the event, and Crampton, uh, like I said in the broadcast, inserting himself now into the conversation of championship contenders. He came from the bottom half of the countdown field and has leapfrogged many, many good cars to get into a striking position where he is like three rounds out of first place. Connie Coletta tuning the car. I mean, what just craziness. It's awesome. Connie Coletta working, of course, with Kurt Elliott on that thing, and it's just been uh, been fun to watch, especially up there in Reading where they got a hold of it and handled their business. We knew Reading was going to be fast. We knew Reading was going to be wet because it always is. Had some rain there, delays, as we always tend to do. But the fans in Reading are legitimately the most hardcore in the world of drag racing of any type, bar none, end of story. When it rains at Reading, it seems like we actually grow more fans. I don't know how that happens. Normally it rains and the, and the place, places empty out. People run for the hills. Even though the safety safari is going to dry the racetrack, people just make a break for it. They're gone. In Reading, it rains. And next thing you know, the grandstands are twice as full than before the rainstorm started. Place was blown out every single day. Sunday was a monster crowd. And they got a hell of a show. They saw things happen in the first couple rounds of competition that just blew everybody's mind, and that's what the countdown's about. The weight of each of those rounds, the fact that we're updating the points constantly on the show to keep you apprised of who's where should be an indication to you of the weight of every single competition run in this time of the year. Can't wait to talk to Brittany Force about that. She's obviously succeeded. 2017, she's the world champion. Does it in Pomona, dramatic fashion. So we're going to talk to Brittany Forrest and and her approach to the countdown, having been a champion in that realm. After Reading, I went down to Virginia Motorsports Park to the, uh, it's called the Comp Cams Shakedown National 17. Now this is a race, 17th running of it, first time at Virginia Motorsports Park. It ran for many, many years at Englishtown. It was founded by a guy named Dave Hance, and uh, it was, for many years, the premier kind of outlaw drag race that existed in the world. 
Guys like Tim Lynch and Steve Petty made their bones, made their names at the shakedown. The race moved to Norwalk, Ohio, had a few good years there, and now has transitioned down to Virginia Motorsports Park. And I can say unequivocally, one of the most electrifying events I have ever been to. One, because of the excitement, the inaugural race at a great facility at VMP. Two, because we ran a specialized deal on Friday night that uh, ran on the same racetrack, Pro Modifieds versus Radio versus the World Cars, the two premier forms of door slammer drag racing in terms of performance, running heads up side by side, kind of trying to settle an age-old debate about who's quicker and faster. And well, the Pro Modified team won the points count. They beat eight pairs of cars. Your team wins, you get a point. They won six of the side-by-side pairs. But at the end of the night, a guy named Marcus Burt became the quickest and fastest eighth-mile door slammer of all time in the Radio vs. the World category, outpacing Pro Modifieds. He went 3.57 seconds in the eighth mile at over 200 miles per hour. Now, the tie-in here is that Stevie Fast Jackson works with Marcus Burt to basically crew chief that car. And Stevie Fast Jackson has proven that Nitrous, which was declared a dead player in Radio vs. the World, is a viable commodity, and those cars can be competitive. And right now, a Nitrous car is the quickest Radio vs. the World machine of all time. Stevie then went on to win the Radio vs. the World category on Saturday Eliminations Day. Car didn't qualify well, but boy, they put the program together. He and Billy Stockland and Phil Schuler really had a handle on their car, and they won the big check on Saturday afternoon. So we're going to talk to Stevie about that win, about Pro Mod Racing, about working with Marcus Burt, kind of everything he's got going on on his plate. The bottom line is this. I love every form of drag racing that exists. I feel like we get tunnel vision sometimes. I mean, we, by we, I don't mean just the NHRA. I mean that every racer that loves his or her particular form of the sport has tunnel vision, and we can't have that. We need to have open vision across the sport to understand how we all help each other and all can support each other. Because at the end of the day, all these roads kind of lead to one place, and that place needs to be the health of drag racing. And I can tell you that the sport is incredibly healthy. I mean, every one of these events I went to was a blowout. Big crowds all over the place, great fans at VMP. Of course, uh, we know what the crowd looked like at Maple Grove. So, that's kind of what I did on my September vacation away from the podcast. Sorry to go a little bit long with it, but the most important message I can send to you listening is to support your racetracks, see something new, experience something new in drag racing. Whether you've never been to a national event before, do it. Whether you've considered going to an event like the Shakedown or you've considered going here, there, anywhere, just do it. There's nothing stopping you from going out and enjoying all the different forms that this sport has to offer. And each one of them brings with it its own kind of uh, enjoyment, surprises, and fun. So that is the way it's going. We're going to have Brittany Force on the show as our first guest today. And of course, her Maple Grove weekend was notable for two huge reasons. The national record that she reset that, frankly, none of us saw. I mean, she outqualified the field by half a tenth on that one run. And it wasn't, we didn't foresee it because we thought the cars were of low quality. We just didn't see anybody really pushing it that hard until David Grubnick came up with the crew and Max Savage and all the rest of the guys and Brittany planted in the seat and she hung on to that car. She drove it like a boss straight down the groove, clearly, and uh, it was fantastic. So without further ado, we welcome the 2017 NHRA Top Fuel Champion and current world record holder in Top Fuel, Brittany Force. Hey, Brittany, how you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. 
So uh, we got a lot to talk about here, obviously. Um, Maple Grove being kind of the first thing on my mind and you setting the world record for top fuel, which was like dramatic. And I don't know if it was unexpected for you, but it was kind of unexpected for the rest of us because nobody had been that deep into the 360s or even close to it that weekend. So if you can kind of walk us through the lead up to that run, because I I remember um, Grubnick saying something to Bruno on the starting line about how the team kind of took a vote about what was going to happen. So walk us through Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. That weekend was incredible. Um, that run when we were in the staging lanes, uh, David Grubnick, he's new to our team this season. He's been incredible to work with, but um, he really gets the entire team involved, which is um, which is pretty awesome. Um, you know, for me as a driver and for every single one of our crew guys, he'll pull us in for meetings and ask our opinion on things. And that weekend in the staging lanes, um, he pulled a few of us aside and, and asked what our thoughts were were on um, setting the record. And um, if we thought we could get the car down there, if we thought we could set a national record, and um, just wanted to hear our thoughts on the whole thing. So I knew going into it all, it was going to be, an, if it would make it, it would be an <laughs> awesome run. Um, but there's always that chance of, is it going to get down there all the way? So was, that was pretty cool to be able to set that record and do that with the entire team. A 3623, I mean... I was blown away when they told me <laughs> that when I jumped out of the car on the other end. They always come on the radio and tell me, but it's so cut up. You can't barely make out what they're saying. So um, I wait until I get out of the car and hear it from Kelly on the top end. Yeah, and you've been, obviously, you've been quick before, but that's the quickest anybody's ever been in one of these things. So how far into it did you know that the thing was officially hauling the mail? Oh, you know, it's um, it's really... I mean, obviously the launch is always, you feel it, it throws you to the back of your seat, but it's when it continues to pull yeah. um, that you know it's on a good <laughs> run and it gets through those, you know, few spots where it might shake or blow the tires off the thing and you see that finish line come in and it's still crystal clear pulling all the way down there, you know, it's going to be a good run. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it it, it, it it stopped all of us in our tracks. And I remember uh, just looking over at Lewis was having a stroke. And then I looked over at Tony Pedregon, <laughs> and he was sitting there with his jaw open. And we're all like, holy crap, that just happened. I know. <laughs> when I got out of the other end, they told me that. I probably asked five times. What? I know I heard you wrong. My, my helmet's still on. My earplugs are still in. I don't know. I, I don't mean, did you hear me right? Like, I know I misunderstood what you said. Can you repeat that again? I probably asked five times down there. Yeah. Um, because I didn't believe yeah, it was great. And again, I knew I knew Grubnik was going to push, but <laughs> that took me by surprise. Yeah, and and to kind of go further on and down that path a little bit. Obviously, we get to Sunday, cars running great. Uh, you go to the semifinals, and you got to shut the car off. There's a leak. He notices yeah. it and shuts the thing down. So, to kind of talk about their relationship, because the reality is. You know what? What everybody is doing out here, especially the, the racers in the in the fuel ranks, like this is a dangerous thing, and there has to be like this really unbreakable trust bond between you and David and, and the whole team. So, as crummy as it is that you had to shut the car off, obviously that comes yeah. to him, and it kind of reinforces that whole scene. I'd have to guess. Yeah, that was a tough decision for um, you know Grubnick to make. Where we've qualified number one we set the national record it's the first race of the countdown um you know you obviously want to start off well um going into the countdown and we were sitting there semifinals pulled up ready to pull up and stage the thing and there was a few leaks so Grumnick came over and shut me off and I remember I stared at him for a second thinking hold on no this can't be real <laughs> right. is that really the signal he's giving me or is it am I misunderstanding him again what's going on and 
you know, you did it a few times and I thought, oh, crap, we have to shut this thing off. So it's really, uh, it's really tough to do that. When you're in the car, you're focused, you're staring down that, you know, that racetrack and to be pulled out of that, you know, little focus bubble that you're in and shut the car off and just learn what the heck is happening. Um, that's tough to do. Um, was, that's really tough to do because you're right there. It's all your, you know, the entire weekend, um, all your work, all the crew guys, crew chiefs, everybody is right there on the line. And then to not even be able to make the run, not even have a chance of winning the round, um, it's really tough to do. So I know that was a hard call for um, David Grubnick and Max Savage, but um, you know, like they said, when we got out on the other end, you know, I'd rather, you know, better, I'd rather have you safe. And so to, I stand by my crew chief's decision on that, obviously. Oh, hundred um, percent. I mean, it's, yeah. All of us are. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. Cause I think that relationship and, and having never been in the relationship, the driver kind of crew chief relationship, I think there has to be moments where it gets more and more solidified or, or you kind of take steps forward. And as, as kind of negative a moment that was, I have to imagine though, when, when the dust settles and when your adrenaline finally stops pumping, you can kind of look back at it with a different eye and go, you know what, this guy legitimately has my best interest in mind here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's I know exactly that's what it was, you know, after we got out. And like you said, everything kind of settled down and calmed down. And we went, you know, we went back to the pits afterwards. And after, you know, at the end of the day, we all got together. And we always have a team meeting on Sunday at the end of the day regardless of how we end up or where we end up. And, um, you know, it was a tough meeting just because, again, it was the first race of the countdown. Yeah. And it's just we have to double-check everything. Right now, we've been preparing all season long for this countdown because we won a championship. And we're in a great position right now. We're currently sitting two in points. And, you know, everybody's crunched so tight right now. It's anyone's game. And to have a mistake like that happen on the line, we, we can't be doing that this far along in the season and especially right now. So really it's, um, you learn from it. Um, I'll tell you right now that that will not happen again the rest of the season. <laughs> yeah. There are certain things that, you know, are a one-time deal. And I have to imagine, <laughs> to imagine that's, yeah. uh, that's one of them. Yeah. You know, you, you went to, you know, you went to school, you're, you went to school, education major, uh, you know, you're, you're kind of uh, tracking to be an English teacher. So the two things come to mind when I think about that. And one is, you know, you when you're an education major, you're, you're one of the things I would assume that you're learning is the different methods that people use to learn, the people that you're eventually going to educate. So, what kind of learner are you? Like, how do you when you're working with David and familiarizing yourself with him? What, how do you learn? Do you learn by physically doing things? Do you learn by studying things? I'm interested in that process. Um, I'm more of a hands-on. I have to see it. If somebody just tells me something. I'll have to ask them 10 times to repeat it. I, I'm more, I have to be more active in it, um, to remember it and really have it settle in. Um, so with Grabnik and I, we'll go back after runs, we'll watch videos of the runs, we'll record everything. And, um, you know, he'll show me things on the computer half the time. <laughs> I don't know what I'm looking at. It doesn't make <laughs> sense to me as a driver. It makes perfect sense to him, but we'll just sit down and talk about the day. We'll talk about the runs, what I felt, um, how I can improve on my driving. And I've always been a person, uh, um, I've always been one to find positives, um, in the negatives, whether it's, uh, you know, a bad day or I completely screwed up, whatever it is. Um, I'll find a way to turn that into a positive because, you know, you need the negatives to come up on and have those, you know, high moments, those high days. Um, so I'm a big believer in, in turning it around and, you know, realizing it happened for a reason because you won't do it again. 
you learn from it. Yeah, no, and that's and that's valuable, and that's how obviously you become a champion, which uh, which you just a couple seasons back were top fuel champion. So I understand, certainly understand that process. How do uh, how do David and Mac work together? I mean, what is their you know if you can talk about kind of how their normal weekend relationship works? They work. I mean, seeing David Grubnick, I've, I've had many crew chiefs, many teams just come through. I'll never, I've never had a bad say, thing to say about anyone, but this team does things so differently um you know the way they all talk to every the crew guys they talk to the team they talk to me as a driver again they want everybody involved and i think that's so cool it really makes every person on the team feel really a part of the team and that they have a say in what we do up there on the starting line and what our plan is going into the next weekend and how can we change things how could we make ourselves better what do we need to focus on um in how, how can we improve on things? You know, what looking at this weekend, where do we correct and how do we fix that? So really we sit down, like I said, at the end of every weekend and we have a good, you know, hour long meetings, usually just about improving and making things better. And how do we make this team stronger? Um, it's, it's incredible to work with those two and i um, very lucky to work with them. I think one of the things that's been awesome over the last several months is uh, the JFR social team has been releasing like really great videos on on the different social platforms, and it's stuff that clearly that everybody has wanted to see because they're getting an incredible response. Um, I think it's stuff that other teams should uh, pick up on and do. Not that I want to see anybody copying the success you've had on this front, but um, how has that... I feel like that's a neat way for the team to bond as well because we're really getting a very good sense of who people are in a very natural way. Like I think very few people know how funny a guy David Grubnick is. I've seen him, you know, I've yeah. seen him away from the racetrack, and the guy literally is hilarious. And and we're starting to see some of that shine through, especially some of your crew guys as well. So how how has that stuff maybe helped uh, on the bonding process? Not that it needed help, but I mean, is it bringing people closer together? Thank you. Um, I appreciate you saying that. That's I have to give all that up to my sister Ashley Forrest and John Forrest Racing Entertainment. She's the one that comes out and films everything and puts those videos together. So to hear that response is, um, um, I mean, it tells us we're doing something right. So that makes them very happy. But um, yeah, those videos, um, I, I'm, we've put a lot of different videos out this season. I think the ones you're referring to are the crew guy videos where yeah. I'm not actually in any of them. It's just getting to know, go behind lines and, um, you know, go behind the ropes and get to know my crew guys because, you know, looking at coming into this season, um, looking at social media and everything I'm doing, I thought, how do I reach, um, how do I reach pulling a new crowd? Um, I know the followers that I have, but how do I, you know, reach other followers maybe that are out there and interested. And I thought, you know what, I think bringing my crew guys in, you know, more into the mix, um, because there's guys out there that probably want to know how do I get involved in yeah. you know, drag racing? How do I, what, what do those guys do on the car? What do they try? Like they want to know that kind of thing. So I thought doing these team videos where instead of getting to know me, I feel like if you look at my social media, you know me pretty well. Um, more so it's, it's getting to know the crew guys, it's the guys that really put in the work and, you know, make this thing, go down the racetrack and put those incredible numbers on the board. So those videos were a lot of fun. We shot them in Charlotte. Um, we have so much footage. So we're just kind of <laughs> been putting them out, getting there, the crew guys and my group, those group of guys, the advanced auto parts guys, they're a funny group. I mean, some of the things they come up with, some of the things that they say, um, they're just hilarious. The entire group is like that. And David Grubnick, he's, the funniest of them all. Oh my gosh, he is hilarious. Half the stuff we can't even use because 
<laughs> because we have to pull it out. We have to keep it PG-13, um, you know, for my younger followers. But um, they're a great group of guys, and it's been fun working with them. And, and they love it, too. They, they're asking, when can we do more videos like that? So um, it's cool to have a group so involved. Yeah, it's willing to jump in and film stuff like that. Yeah, and it's it's to me it's it's so organic and natural, like it's not canned. And you know, this is I'm not taking a shot at anybody else out there that's doing stuff, but it's like some most of the stuff comes off as just so canned. Like I know what this guy is going to say 30 seconds before he says it. And all those yeah. videos, I sit there and we all watch them because you never know what's coming up next. So, uh, like yeah. I said, big props to you guys for doing that, and I hope it kind Thank of you. blazes a trail uh, for for other teams taking that same approach. Um, so let's talk about the countdown a little bit because you've been through this uh, multiple times. You've been through it as a champion. And I guess I want to talk about you know when your championship, uh, when you won it, it came right down to the wire in Pomona. So we still have you know five races left in this thing. So it's, it's a long way to go, but it isn't. So I guess just talk to me about having been a champion, having won it really at the end of the line in Pomona. How do you mentally kind of set yourself over the next five races? Oh, you know, how I figured it out in 2017, I don't know because that was, it's a lot of pressure, especially when, um, back in 2017 when we went in and it was Pomona. It came down to Pomona. It came down to race day. And, um, it's tough to handle the pressure just because I've never, at that point, I'd never been in a position like that. Sure. And how are you going to take that all in? How are you going to use it to motivate you? And how are you going to go up there? How are you going to do are you going to crack under pressure or are you going to use that and, you know, do the best job you can? And luckily we, we you know, our, our team came out on top and we won the thing. Um, it, you know, I remember that day, I wish I could go back and relive the whole thing. I just remember <laughs> it, it just went by so fast and um, it's hard to enjoy it because you're being pulled in so many different directions. And at the same time, I feel like my head's going to explode because I can't believe, you know, what we just <laughs> did, but that makes you want to do it again. I mean, after winning a championship, I want more like I, I'm not done yet. And um, our team, our advanced team, we're in a great place right now. We're, we're currently two in points. When we, we went in in 2017, we were in the number six position. Yeah. So everyone keeps focusing on, oh, you know, the person right in front of you, number one, number two, number three, they're focused on the top three. But really, it's all of them because we're so crunched, so tight for points. Um, it's anyone's game. Robert years ago won from, from the number 10, 10 Yeah, spot. he came from 10th. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's really it's everyone. It's not just focusing on those top few, top few people, um, teams chasing it. It's all of us. And really, the other big question I keep getting asked is, um, um, you know, what's the what are the one or two races to really focus on in the countdown? And to me, it, it's every single one of them. It's not just the first ones. It's not just the you know the last couple ones, Vegas and Pomona. It's staying strong and pushing. I mean, from the very first one to the last one, you have to stay strong through the whole thing. I mean, we want points in qualifying. Uh, we want to be number, Grebnik wants to be number one every single weekend. Um, and, you know, going rounds on race day and keep moving up and staying in that top because once you fall too far behind, um, it's hard to catch. For, so I'm motivated. I'm pumped going into this thing and I'm ready to go to St. Louis. Are you the, you know, are you the type of person that, that wants to be not, I don't want to say chasing, but are you the type of person that wants to be, say, well, let's just set up a scenario. The type of person that wants to be the racer that's a round out mm -hmm. going into Pomona, or you want to be, are you the type of person that wants to be two rounds up? I mean, because I think the pressure is different there, right? The pressure yeah. of being chased versus chasing. So talk to me about that. 
Absolutely. I've never been on the other side of it. So I like where we were in 17. We were yeah. chasing it. And at that point, you push as hard as you want because you don't have as much to lose. But when you're being chased, it's everything's on the line and you could lose it at any second. So that might be a whole new mindset. Um, I don't care. As long yep. as we're in either one of them, <laughs> right. at the end of this thing, I'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> but right now, we were we were chasing it. We were behind, um, you know, trying to get to that one spot. So it's, you're putting everything in and, and yeah, the fear is there, but um, it's, I think it's a different kind of fear um, rather than, you know, being number one and the fear of losing it. So I've never been in that position. But again, if, if we're in the hunt for it, I'll take either one. Yeah, exactly. I'll figure it out. Yeah, I get you. I get, there's really no bad place. If you're one or two, there's no real bad place in there. Yeah. Um, you know, to change the change the subject a little bit here, I'm interested because, you know, when we learn about drivers and talk about them, everybody has areas that they're strong in and everybody has areas where they feel like they need to, they, they that they press in and that they concentrate their energy to get better in. And I don't mean specific things. I don't mean, oh, I, I want to get better reaction times. I want to do this, that, or the other thing better. But what is, what is for you, like, what is for you the hardest part about doing this? And I, I mean that in, in the, in the, the whole sense. Is it, is the hardest part about doing this the the nomadic lifestyle? Is the hardest part about doing this the the performance expectation for you? If you had to pick one element of this that you think is the most difficult of of your top fuel career, your top fuel life, what what do you think it would be? Definitely the most difficult is the the pressure of it all. Each race weekend, you go on with a different type of pressure. Whether it's you're in, it's the first race of the countdown. It's the biggest race of the season in Indy. Um, all your sponsors are out there this weekend. It's handling that pressure. But actually, no, more than that, it's um, it comes down to performance. Me as a driver, because I am my biggest critic. And every weekend, you know, I tear apart everything. And how do I fix this? And how do I get better? And luckily, I have David Grubnick and Max Savage who are like I said, awesome to work with. We sit down and talk about everything and they have my back through everything. Weekends I screw up, weekends I do great. They're always there. They have my back. So I'm lucky to have support system um, like that in our pits, but definitely the performance um, going up there, trying to do the best you can. And, and some days you just can't, some days you screw up. And for me, it's um, struggling with reaction time. Um, I go through phases where I just suck. And then I go through phases where I get pretty good and it's, um, you know, it's, it's trying to figure that out. It's a lot when you're standing outside the car, watching everything. And I'll stand up there on the starting line behind my dad's car, or Austin's car and stare at that tree. And I'm like, this is so easy. Why is it so different when you're in the car? And it's because of the pressure of it all. And, um, so really just finding that balance and figuring that out. I've talked to, you know, a lot of people I've talked to Don, the snake Prudhomme. Um, I have a lot of conversations with my dad and Robert and even Austin. Um, and it's just, it's a, it's a mental thing going up there. And sometimes you get a mental block and finding a way to get rid of it and feel that confidence and staying positive through it all. But it's not easy. That's probably, that's definitely the toughest part of the job. Yeah. And I, and I, I super appreciate your honesty there. I appreciate your candor because, you know, one of the things I always try to do with this is this podcast is, is try, you know, try to give people some insight into the fact that it's just, it's, it is a different, it is a different thing than most people at home understand it to be in terms of, mm -hmm. in terms of the, uh, the amount of instantaneous focus and, and precision that you guys need to have to succeed. Yeah. Um, one last, one last thing I want to bring up before I, before I let you go and let you get on with the rest of your life here. Um, 
So uh, there was an interesting piece of audio that I don't think actually ever aired on the show. I heard it at the top end. It was actually at Atlanta, and you had raised Steve Torrance, and Steve Torrance had come up, and oh. and, and and no, <laughs> I this don't is know no, where no, this is going. <laughs> no, no, this is no, 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 this is not bad. This was this was something that I heard, and it was like it was it was actually badass. So you know, Steve came over, and and it wasn't he didn't say anything negative to you. He actually was I don't know, kind of halfway apologizing for something or whatever. Uh, but you looked right uh-huh. back at him, and you said, you know what, man? You said you can back up everything you say, so it's fine. And I was like, oh, oh, damn. I was like, shit, that's awesome. So I I guess for, you know, I don't don't need the whole background or inside of it. I don't want that. But to me, that said a lot about you and your understanding and respect for your fellow competitors, especially a guy like that. Yeah, um, actually, I totally remember that conversation. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think that was in the beginning of the season. And, you know, over the years, Steve and I have had our ups and downs and, you know, things have been said um, and this season, I don't, I think after, you know, winning the championship last season, um, he's come back and he's apologized for some of the shit that he said. Cause he knew like, you know, it, that's the thing is in the heat of battle in, in the moment when you climb out of your car, your blood is boiling. Your yeah. adrenaline's up, And sometimes you just say things that's right. What's on your mind. And then you come back and you reflect on a little bit. And, okay. Maybe that was a little out of line. And, um, so he's apologized to me for some of the things and I will always take an apology. Um, we know we're good. If you apologize, um, we'll start fresh. And, you know, the fact that he's come over and, you know, um, you know, brought those few things up and apologize for him. We're friends. And, um, I appreciate, you know, him being able to do that. And in that moment, I, that conversation you're talking about, he, I mean, you know, everybody knows Steve Torrance. He he jumps out and he'll say things. Yeah, shoots it's off his head. A little cocky, but yeah. that's exactly who Steve Torrance is. And what I was saying is, it's fine that you say that. I think that's great for the sport. And the thing is, it's not that you say these cocky things and well, you can't back him up because he does. He can absolutely back up um, what he's saying because he's a great driver. So um, that, that that's what that conversation came from. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and 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 trust me when I tell you this, I don't lack respect for anybody that climbs into a top fuel car. But but when I heard that, I thought, wow! I thought that it was a great, and it wasn't it wasn't said in like some snarky way. It was said like you looked him right in the eye and said, "Hey, man." Like I get it. Like you can back it up, and I was like, "Damn!" I thought that was awesome. Yeah. I thought it was really cool, and and, and it was, yeah. a, you know, and it was literally it was a moment between you two guys that we just happened to have. There was a camera facing you, as there always is, right? And we just happened to yeah. pick up the audio, and it wasn't anything that ever made air. But for me, it was like one of those neat little snippets that sometimes we catch. That's just like that's cool. That lends a little window into the kind of inner world that uh, that the drivers live in that, that none of us that yeah. don't do it will ever uh, understand. So uh, we're going to St. Yeah. Louis this weekend. It's going to be hot. It's going to be interesting. And uh, I'm sure you guys will be loaded up and ready for it. So um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Of really, course. really appreciate the conversation. And I look forward to uh, seeing you this weekend. Best of luck to the Advanced Auto Parts team. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And um Anytime you need me, I'll be back on. Great. Thanks, Brittany. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And how cool was that? I mean, what a great conversation with Brittany Forrest. I feel like I come out of that conversation knowing more about her, knowing more about the team, and getting some insight into her process and her background and her operation that uh, maybe we didn't have before, which is the end goal of this. Every time we sit down and make one of these, I want it to be good, and I want, it to, I want to get a little piece of information that maybe we didn't have about some of these drivers and people in our sport. Um that uh, that we know and love, so it's totally cool. A guy that we know a lot about is Stevie Fast Jackson. He's going to be the next guest on the show. So we go from Brittany uh, being candid and honest and giving us great insights to Stevie Fast Jackson, who literally knows no other speed. So Stevie Fast Jackson, without further ado, welcome back for the second time on to the NHRA Insider Podcast. 
Lones, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing awesome. It's race week. No better day in the, in the week than race week, the beginning of race week. It, it, man, it's been like race month for you. You're a guy who uh, you don't let any moss grow on the stone, man. You're always rolling around. So uh, before we get to your successes last weekend, which I alluded to at the beginning of the show, I want to talk about what's uh, what's gotten us to this point in the season and you hanging on to a, a six-round points lead right now as we come into St. Louis. So um, – Let's talk about. Let's just talk about the year so far, and in general, what's been the difference between a Stevie Fast that's leading the points versus a Stevie Fast that was uh, not really middling along. You had a good year last year, but you weren't at the top. The biggest thing is, is this year we decided at the beginning of the year that we were going to attack all the time. We knew we were going to trip and fall some by attacking all the time. We were not complacent at any race, and we didn't give up. You know, I can I can remember races last year where, you know, it was bad atmospheric conditions, and we just used that as an excuse why we would fail. Uh, with a supercharger car, we're very dependent on atmosphere uh, to be competitive with the nitrous and turbo cars. And this year, it's just not an excuse. Uh, we decided before Gainesville that we wanted to run in the top three every single race. And we have tripped and fallen some because of that. Uh we have aborted a lot of runs in qualifying. Um, you can see how the season started out. We aborted our first two runs in, in Gainesville, and then we went out and set the national record in the third run. That's that's not a traditional approach of how I run a race car. <laughs> you know, normally you want to ease up in Q1 and then go faster. We're like 50% on Q1 and 2 and like 80% of going number one on Q3. So. Uh, it's it's had its highs and lows, but uh, we're just not taking our foot off the gas. Yeah, and how much of that how much of that strategic change or I guess mental change comes with? Um, it has to be an agreement, right? You, you have to be you, you and Billy Stockland, the, the guy you 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 work side by side with on this race car with. You have to be kind of locked into that same mentality, right? Me and Billy have a very strange relationship. You would think that I'm always the aggressive guy and he's always the timid guy, but we change roles like we change underwear. <laughs> I mean, I, we'll be going up there and I want to stand on it and he's pulling me back. In the very next run, I'll be like, Billy, you're an idiot. You just told me we need to calm down and you're hitting the main jet 10 pal. <laughs> I was like, ease up. We have a very personal relationship where we can both put our egos to the side and uh, we keep each other in check, man. When we both are on an aggressive mood, when we've had a bad night or something, that's generally when you see those mind-boggling runs that we sometimes piece together. Almost despite the car. Yeah. <laughs> we'll show you. I'm like, you I was, and I'll tell the car, I'll be like, this is your fault of what I'm about to do to you. If you'd have went down the track like I told you to in Q1, I wouldn't have to smash on you like this in Q2. Man, you've, uh, you've uh, won at the highest levels of pro mod racing before you've been a champion at Pro Nitrous over in the PDRA side of things so can you call on any of that experience uh, when we're coming into these last couple races now where you know not only trying to i know you and like we've just talked about you're not out here trying to protect anything you're trying to stretch the lead so does the pdra experience come in here at all absolutely the, the one thing that i learned from pdr adrl racing radial tire championships is that you cannot go into the stretch with a lead trying to defend anything because you don't have anything to defend. You haven't won anything yet. So when you see guys get into a situation out here where they're trying to play it safe and not screw up, you will get blown away. We are, we are approaching this thing just like we're trying to come from behind. Um, we, we, in Indy first round against Todd Tuttero, that was a big moment. Uh, I failed. I went up there. 
I knew I had to leave on Todd. I knew he had a better car than me that weekend. And, and that attacking mode is what's going to win us some rounds in the stretch. Yes, when you, you will trip and fall when you're on offense all the time, but that's the only way I know how to race. Yeah, and, you know, segueing that kind of mental approach into what we saw last weekend. Now, for the for the, for the listeners that don't know what this race is, the CompCam Shakedown National 17, it's a it's a big small tire and pro mod drag race, what what some people consider like a quote-unquote outlaw race, where the pro mods don't race by the NHRA rules, they race more in a PDRA rule book. But you were competing in the Shadow 2.0, the car you won Indy with. You were running in the radio versus the world category, as well as crew chiefing for a guy named Marcus. Bert. So I want to talk about Marcus first because when we talk about this style of drag racing, everybody, you know, every couple of years it bubbles up that nitrous, they just write nitrous off. It's over with, baby. It's done. You can't compete with this stuff. You piped up about a year or so ago and said, hey, if someone wants to let me tune on a nitrous car, I'll show you exactly how fast they can be. Well, you've proceeded to set not only the nitrous record, but now the world record in this category. So I want to talk about that whole program and your level of satisfaction by proving everybody wrong and yourself right. That thing kind of came about just like you alluded to. I was tired of hearing the chatter of all the guys that run nitrous cars saying that nitrous wasn't competitive, yet continuing to stay with a nitrous combination. I started out like most everyone did in drag racing with a with a nitrous combination. I've ran one longer than everybody, and I don't claim to be a super tuner. I'm no Billy Stockland when it comes to these. Uh, I just take a common sense approach of how to run the thing. When everybody started say, talking about just getting rid of nitrous in radio versus the world and making their own category for them, I had just had enough. I called Jeffrey Barker and I was like, you know, anybody that's got like just any normal one of these things that I can go run. You know, I kind of sold off all my nitrous stuff when we went blower racing. He's like, yeah, Marcus has got Marcus. You know, I know this guy named Marcus Bird. He's got a Vickle car, an old Corvette, and he's got an old Musi motor. So I did some research and found out that the engine that's in that thing. I don't know if you remember this, Longs. Do you remember the Batmobile? Yeah. You remember the old 71 or whatever Mach 1 Mustang that belonged to Bubba Livingston, the Bat? I called it the Bat. It's basically the ugliest drag car on history. It was horrendous. And the main reason I remember it is because it was it was the one of the one half of the first side-by-side three-second radio run that got made down in Bradenton. Absolutely, yes. This is the motor that was in the Batmobile. you got to be kidding Marcus's me. Car. No, this is no cutting edge stuff. This is no latest and greatest Wazoo Pro Nitrous NHRA engine. <laughs> this is the Batmobile motor. This thing was, I mean, you just, it looked, when Marcus bought it, it looked like it had been pulled out of a swamp. Now, it, he's made it nice now and stuff and cleaned all the mud out from under the manifold and got all the dirt daubers out. Got some of the, we got some of the solenoids working, but uh, this thing is not a state of the art piece. I told him, I said, all right, this is the only way I'll do this. we got to put Holly EFI on this thing. You're going to bring it to my shop. I'm going to put a torque converter in it. It's my torque converter, and you don't ask any questions. I don't want <laughs> one question. I want you to just sit back and drive it. And Marcus said, I don't know anything about these cars anyway. Go have fun. They bring that thing to my shop. I put a converter in it, wired up, put an ECU in it, and we went out there and went 360s in seven runs. So it's it's it was from a tuner standpoint, it's one of the most successful feelings I've ever had in drag racing. I've done a lot and won a lot, not as much as some of the other people uh, that have been racing for a thousand years. But the, uh, the the feeling of basically telling you that I'm coming to crush you and crushing you, that's that's Stevie Fast mentality. It, it was awesome. They got a, a good group of guys working on that thing. I got Jeffrey Barker helping me kind of car chief that deal. 
Uh, he doesn't get a lot of credit, but, you know, Jeffrey Barker and me are good friends. We work hand-on-hand on hand a lot of projects. He lives in Macon, which is close to Marcus, and he does the legwork of going to make sure that thing's ready to compete. When I uh, need to change something at the track, you know, I never go over there and work on that thing. I'm, I'm always racing my own car. Jeffrey loads the tune-ups in there. He does the mechanical adjustments on the car and does a good job. And Marcus is an awesome driver. He's consistent. Uh, he does what I tell him to do. And uh, it's it's a good program. That car is not nearly as fast as it will be, I promise you. That's a scary thought for everybody else. Now, the interesting scenario that presented itself was you having to race Marcus in the final round of the Radio vs. the World category at the shakedown. So uh, we know the Marcus side of the story, how that car has been set up and running. Now let's go back to the Shadow 2.0. You, Phil Schuler, and Billy Stockland were uh, obviously on top of that thing this weekend. Did not qualify well, but then race day showed up and you guys were there. Yeah, Q1, I went out there and went for it. I I told him I want to set the world record off the trailer in Q1. And it was a unique scenario that Q1 was the best conditions that we would have, I thought, at the time. It looked like heat was coming in, the track looked good, and I pushed Billy completely over the edge of the cliff, and he's smiling the whole time. Uh, And we went out there and smoked the tires Q1. So afterwards, I was like, you're stupid, Billy. I was like, why would you do that? I was like, go out there and get in the show. And he wanted to chuck me out. Uh, So, like, I take full credit for smoking the tires in Q1. Q2, the thing goes out there uh, and explodes. I think it was Q2. Explodes the drivetrain. Yeah. Um, In what could have been a deadly accident, uh, it ended up kind of wrecking the race car. Broke a front universal joint exploded the drive shaft tunnel and this is a spec titanium drive shaft tunnel explodes the drive shaft tunnel drive shaft comes apart a piece of universal cap I, I wear a 20 layer sfi shoe and i wear a 20 layer over boot and the thing hit my left toe so hard it broke my toe like my toe right wow. now looks like a like a vienna sausage <laughs> uh the right the universal joint ko'd the lower frame rail went through the middle of the passenger door out the car I was in the right lane, bounced off the wall in the right lane and went all the way across the racetrack and landed beside a fan in the middle of the stands. Uh, this thing destroyed the car like normal people would have smiled, been happy they're alive and loaded it up. But we are idiots and decided we we're going to fix it. So I send 10 people in 10 different directions. I got FedEx bringing Liberty parts, it broke the transmission, ended up going to the Peterbilt dealership, getting a six inch chrome smokestack. And I had the only chrome Peterbilt SFI approved drive shaft tunnel on the track. <laughs> we got a bunch of local guys to help us weld the stuff up. And I mean, I'm in the trailer tuning on this thing with Billy and it sounds like someone is taking a D nine dozer and pounding the trailer. They're beating on this thing so hard. I wouldn't even come outside. You didn't want to see like, it. You want to go out there and check on that stuff? I was like, hell no, no I got to ride in that thing. <laughs> so we get it patched up uh, and, and Billy made some awesome runs. I give all the credit on race day to Billy um we work on that thing hand in hand uh when when we're qualifying and there's time but with tuning marcus's car solo and him tuning that thing he made awesome race day decisions uh and and billy's i I say it all the time billy's the best there is at what they do at at this anybody can argue my point but i tell you when billy's talking standing behind your car when you light the bulb you have an advantage over anybody else at the racetrack over the car another lane we're going up for the final me and Billy sit beside each other, and I'm talking shit to him the whole time because I knew he couldn't outrun me. <laughs> I told him, I said, I'm about to wear your ass out. 
And he said, no, you're not. He said, you're going to help me wear your own ass out. He's like, you're going to beat yourself with yourself. He's like, I'm going to need you to be up on the wheel. Because he knew he couldn't outrun that big that big nitrous motor. It's not that we can't. We just haven't made enough runs with the screwball combination. Uh, and it ended up being an awesome final. Um, Marcus went red, and I hate that. I told him going up there, I said, if you go 030 on the tree, you're going to win. I said, I got you a card. It's going to go 50 or 7 or 8. You know, have confidence in it. And I – from a tuner and a driver standpoint, I would have been just as happy as him winning that race as me winning that race. Um, but you know, it doesn't always work out like that. You have to, you have to fail on that large of a stage sometimes to be able to succeed on a larger stage. We got out of the car on the top end and he's all beating himself up. And I told him, I was like, I want to tell you something. One time, 75 years ago in the final round at like no mercy one, I lost to Keith Berry on a whole shot in the shadow. I don't even want to say that out loud. <laughs> and I know Keith Barry's probably listening. He's like, ah, I got your ass. But like when you lose to Keith Barry on a whole shot, they're just, this is, it, the only thing worse than that would be losing to Keith Haney on a whole shot. If I, if I have it, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna turn around and come back at the starting line. So y'all all run. Like there's nowhere safe on the kamikaze, starting line. Kamikaze, kamikaze mission. Kamikaze yeah. is coming at you. But you know, but seriously, on a serious note, you got to be up there, feel that pressure and fail so that when you're rolling into the finals at Indy uh, for the U.S. Nationals or going into Vegas trying to win a championship, you are used and accustomed to that pressure. And Marcus is a really good driver, driven for a long time, and he's going to win some races. My goal is to roll into no mercy and repeat that final, and we'll just we'll let the drivers decide it on the starting line. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I mean, like you said, that the final, you know, what we saw at that race, and, and there are certain events, and you know this from all the races you've been at, there are certain events that kind of take on their like a personality or life of their own. And this thing was like, you know, we had Marcus, uh, you know, Marcus setting the all-time Radio vs. the World record on the last pass, I think, on Saturday night, and then you got or Friday night, and then you guys, the side-by-side, it was the first ever side-by-side run in the 350s of uh, two Radio vs. the World cars, which, again, that and, that and five bucks gets you a cup of coffee, but at the end of the day, it's a neat little historical footnote to know that, one, you were driving one of the cars and you would tune the other one. That's That's pretty awesome. Yeah, nobody will ever remember in 10 years who won that race, but there are certain milestones in our sport that I think are, are, are important. I, I remember when I was the first one to run 450s on a drag radio. I was the first one to run 460s. I thought nobody's ever going to be able to go any faster than this. <laughs> like, so it was like a huge deal, right? And then we were the first to the 30s. And I was like, oh, then we were the first to the teens. I remember Donald Long and me having a conversation when I went 419, and I told him, I said, I don't think anybody will ever get to those. I just don't think it'll ever happen, right? So, like, the records come and go, but there are certain milestones. I wanted to be the first side-by-side to the 350s. When we're sitting there putting the main jet in the car, Billy's hung up between two jets, and I was like, just hit the damn thing five. I was like, if this thing runs a 460 flat and he goes 458, I'm going to kill you. So he's like, let it rip, Taylor Chip. So uh, it ended up it ended up working out good. It's, it's fun. It's it's I get more enjoyment tuning that nitrous car and watching those guys. They, they they think I have a crystal ball and like I just have some sort of supernatural powers because I can tell them what it's going to run. But when you got a well sorted out nitrous program, it's just consistent and does what you tell it. I told them we we're going to run a, a four fifty eight with a two and ended up going a little slower than that. But uh, it's fun watching those guys get to do the enjoyment part of succeeding that I saw myself do uh, years ago. It's fun. So, you know, have you – it's a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Have you had 
have you one have you ever had been having more fun in drag racing and two have you ever been in a more stressful situation in terms of your overall operation because you're you know for all the years that you you know you bootstrapped your way up and did stuff i know that's incredibly stressful trying to figure out how you're going to pay for the thing and how everything's going to come together and this and that you're at a point now where you know nothing's easy i'm not saying that but what i'm saying is the the size and scope of what you're doing now in drag racing is probably well beyond anything you could have imagined and two it seems like you're having a hell of a time at it it's it's all encompassing and that's the only way i know how to describe it i've never worked so hard i literally am on the road about 280 i'm I'm on the road as much as you about 280 days a year i'm on the road that's a fact race all over the world i run four different cars at least at a time um it's hard to get money to pay for it it's harder to win Sometimes I have to sit back and, and and remind myself that I love this sport because there are days that it will just absolutely beat you down. Right now, I'm at the chassis shop repairing Jim Whiteley's car uh, from from the mishap it had in testing. Yeah. I've got to be in St. Louis. I'm going to stay here until this car is rolling, and then i got to be in St. Louis. It's really hard to manage your time and manage your budget. Uh, I get wrapped up. I, I micromanage things to a fault, and when you run things like that, it's really hard on you when you fail. The reason I have so much success is because I take the losses so personally. If I work on your race car, I want it to win at all costs above my car succeeding. Uh, and, and with that said, I have never had as much fun racing as thriving under that type of pressure my nhra car is running good my radial tire car is running good this is one of the best years i've ever had in this sport i feel like i am driving the car better than i ever had when you have a a, whether it be a major league athlete whether it be a a ball player a football player or, or any kind of athlete they can tell you those years where they are on their game and you can't manufacture it. You can't talk yourself into it. You can't replace it. You either just have it or you don't. And this year, I feel like I'm driving the car better than ever. It helps when I got Billy giving me a car that I know I can go up there and just flat smoke them. Uh, you know, a fast car breeds a fast driver. But it's hard. It's it's expensive. And it's fun. So, yeah, all of it. I want all of it. I'm trying to figure out if I could race another day out of the week. <laughs> if you can, figure it out because I'd like to do that too. Um yeah, and, and to going back to the, what you've talked about, the attack mentality, it's clearly translated to the wheel. I mean, we've seen we've seen some very brilliant performances from you over the course of elimination days this year, and uh, not just not just dialing one or two great reaction times, but the consistency. And to me, that's always the measure, right? I feel like uh, even a schmuck like me, every once in a while, can dial up a decent light, but when I watch somebody do it, and I watch them do it multiple times in a row, it tells me about just how kind of locked in they are. Um, as we look at these last couple of races, you got Mike Janis uh, closest to you. You got Todd Tuttero kind of hanging back there. Um, who do you worry about most, or do you worry about anybody? Uh, I worry about both those guys. I was worried, and I said this publicly. I was worried about Jose the most. Uh, turbo car is the hardest thing to defeat in the stretch. It's the air favors a turbo car. Vegas air favors a turbo car. Uh, Janice and Todd are both making good runs. Um, they're make they have fast race cars. I don't count anybody out. The problem is, is if you hyper-focus on one of those guys, it doesn't matter because anybody that's the qualified 16 cars can take you out. Um, I can't sit by – I mean, Khaled Albalushi has got what I think right now is the best running car. Ricky finally left all his kits on to the 1,000 foot, so he's out there running <laughs> 571. Um, so you have a lot of cars that are running good. Castellana's got a hot rod. He's got an automatic blower car that Frank, Frank and those guys – 
uh, Larry Morgan have that thing haul and tail. So I don't think there's any one guy. What I have to do is qualify where I'm not running one of those sledgehammers and uh, hope that one of those sledgehammers take each other out. At the end of the day, I want it exactly like Indy. I want Todd Tuttero and I want Mike Janice in the first round every single race. If you want to be a champion, I don't want to dodge anybody. You talk about reaction time. I pride myself on having the best average reaction time of every single event. Now, when you do that, just like when you swing for the fences, you're going to strike out. Uh, I can go 20 red if I am too jacked up and too hyper-focused on that light. So we've been practicing a bunch in the last two weeks and slowing me down because I want it too bad. Um, you know, when you look back at the crash last year from Charlotte, that's a case of me wanting to win too bad. And, you know, we've been focusing on slowing me down. A lot of the testing in the shadow this weekend, if you look, you saw some 120 and 100 lights. That's me trying some things to slow me down. I'm like, nope, that doesn't work. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. 100 lights not going to beat anybody in an HRA Pro Mod. Uh, but I'm not worried about one person. I'm worried about all of them. Everybody's got a, has got a good race car right now. If we do our job, they're going to struggle to catch us. Looks like it's going to be hot in St. Louis. That's going to favor turbo and nitrous cars. Uh, but we're going to swing at it. We got his hot rod. Cool, man. Hey, Stevie, I appreciate you taking the time. Like I said, I know you're going 600 mile an hour. So thanks for taking a few minutes. Go back to getting uh, Jim's car squared away, and I will see you in a couple days in St. Louis, man. Absolutely. Thank you, Longs. Appreciate you. Thanks, Chief. Be good. And so that brings us to the end of this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. And this is absolutely unequivocally one of my most favorite episodes that we've made yet. I feel like great interviews from both drivers, great answers, not the questions. The answers were fantastic. And uh, we learned stuff and we got great insight and uh, just just really, really fun. And a great setup for this weekend's race in St. Louis where both Stevie Fast Jackson will be trying to uh, continue to stretch a points lead in Pro Mod and Brittany Forrest will continue to try to climb into that number one spot. So it's going to be great this weekend in St. Louis. If you're not going to make it to the race, make sure you go to NHRA.com and check out our broadcast schedule. We have shows on Friday and two shows on Sunday. An early show with final qualifying and then our elimination show will be live at 2 p.m. Eastern following, uh, following through the elimination rounds action. So it's going to be fantastic. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week, I promise, I think, with another episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. You never know what's going to happen around here. 